Welcome to another ABI podcast. This is Bill Rochelle, ABI's Editor-at-Large. Today we're going to be talking about the new bankruptcy rules, or I should say amended bankruptcy rules, that become effective on December 1. Our expert commentator today is Una O'Boyle, just now elevated to be the clerk of the United States Bankruptcy Court for the District of Delaware. Ms. O'Boyle is a person with a long career in bankruptcy. She began by clerking for bankruptcy judges Tina Brosman and Burton Lifland, who of course are two of the finest judges ever to sit on any bench anywhere. We fast forward a number of years and we find that Ms. O'Boyle is spending eight years as the chief deputy in the clerk's office in the Southern District of New York. And then as you guessed, on September 1, she was named to be the clerk of the bankruptcy court for the District of Delaware. And so far, Ms. O'Boyle has devoted 23 years of her career to public service in the bankruptcy court. I've got to say, however, that I don't think this job in Delaware will be the uh, end of her career by any means, because if you look at New York, you see that the clerk, Cecilia Morris, was elevated to the bankruptcy bench, and she is now the uh, chief bankruptcy judge for the Southern District of New York. And Ms. O'Boyle, I suspect there is going to be something like that in your future, although frankly, I think that uh, your talents might be best spent as the clerk in some very busy, perhaps, circuit court, helping them uh, communicate more effectively with the legal community as well as the public to help those courts uh, juice up their uh, websites and their electronic filings, because Ms. O'Boyle, that's something you have uh, done very well. Thank you, Bill. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, you you got to give a plug for people who deserve it, uh, and, and you're that. And frankly, uh, a court that could use your help more than any is the U.S. Supreme Court, which lags the circuits and the district and the bankruptcy courts in terms of having a good website. But that's beside the point. In any event, uh, let's talk about the rules, Ms. O'Boyle. We've got, as I understand it, uh, I guess it's four areas where the Rules Committee uh, proposed new rules that become effective on the 1st of December. We have the so-called uh, stern rules. Uh, we have uh, new rules on the three-day mailing. And we have uh, security interests uh, in principal residences. And also, we have new rules dealing with cross-border bankruptcies. But let's begin with the big one, Mr. Boyle. Let's talk about the stern rules. As I understand it, that has been an off-and-on history in terms of uh, proposal of new rules. Uh, how did that come about and what happened? Well, an amendment to a federal rule usually takes about three years. So, But in 2011, the Advisory Committee on the Bankruptcy Rules began considering whether they needed to be amended in response to the Supreme Court's decision in Stern v. Marshall. At that time, Bankruptcy Rules 7008 and 7012 required parties to adversary proceedings to state in the complaint and any response of pleading whether the proceeding was core or not core, and if not core, whether the pleader consented to entry of final judgment by the bankruptcy judge. After Stern, the proceeding might be designated as core by statute, you know, under 28 U.S.C. 157 B2, but be beyond the constitutional authority of the bankruptcy court to hear and determine the matter without the party's consent. 
So the committee proposed amendments to both rules to eliminate the distinction between core and non-core and to require parties in all proceedings to state in their pleadings whether they did or didn't consent to entry of a final judgment or order by the bankruptcy judge. They also proposed amendments to uh, Rule 7016, which is the pretrial procedures, to direct the bankruptcy court to determine its own authority in a proceeding, and to Rule 9033, the proposed findings of facts and conclusions of law, to omit the rule's limitation to non-core proceedings. So the amendments uh, were published for comment in August of 2012. They were given final approval by the Judicial Conference and submitted to the Supreme Court for consideration. Shortly thereafter, the Supreme Court granted cert in um, Executive Benefits Insurance Agency v. Arkansas. And one of the issues in that case was whether Article III permits the bankruptcy court to enter final judgment on a stern claim if it has the express or implied consent of the parties to do so. So because the proposed stern amendments relied on the validity of consent, the committee decided that the Supreme Court should not consider them while the issue was pending before it and withdrew the amendments. In June of 2014, the Supreme Court decided Arkansas, as you know, without reaching the consent issue. But a few weeks later, they granted certain wellness, Wellness International Network versus Sharif, which also presented the issue of consent. And so as a result, the amendments remained withdrawn. In the meantime, however, some of the district courts and the bankruptcy courts had amended their own local rules and orders of reference, similar to the proposed you know, federal amendments, to deal with the stern dilemma. So in May of 2015, the Supreme Court issued the wellness decision, holding that the bankruptcy courts may adjudicate stern claims with the knowing and voluntary consent of the parties. So the proposed amendments were resubmitted to the Supreme Court on an expedited, on an expedited basis in um, October, of 20, October 29th of 2015 to become effective this December. So now we have them, huh? Now we have them, five years later. <laughs> and uh, what is the... Uh the principal theory behind these amendments so we can really get a grasp of what they do without looking at the precise language. They really just remove, they remove the, uh, the core, non-core distinction and just require the parties to either consent or not consent to the entry of final orders or judgments by the bankruptcy court. And do you think that uh, in case somebody evades the rule by not indicating whether they consent or not, do you think that is going to go in the direction of implied consent, or, or how do you think it might come down if it does? I mean, implied consent has come, become an issue in some of the cases. I think on a practical matter, um, I, I, I know the judges that um, we dealt with, in, I dealt with in New York primarily, if they have a pretrial hearing and they have the, um, the pleadings before them and someone has failed to state it, they're going to demand that the, the party state whether they um, consent or do not consent. Um, I think on one of the uh, on one of the local rules, um, it's uh, it it ends with if no such statement is included, the pleader shall have waived the right to contest the authority of the court to enter final orders or judgments. Well, whether that holds up right or not, <laughs> whether that holds up or not, I don't know. But <laughs> it's yeah. in the local rule. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's uh, that gives the the judges some uh, some real power in their own hands. Let me ask you this, Ms. O'Boyle: When does this rule and the other rules become effective? Are they applicable in pending cases or only in cases filed on and after December the first? Well, the the order submitted submitted you know the order submitted by the Supreme Court is that 
They shall govern in all proceedings and bankruptcy cases thereafter commenced and insofar as just and practicable, all proceedings then pending. So I guess it's open to interpretation. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess since you work from the proposition that rules cannot affect jurisdiction, the question as to whether or not one of these rules is applicable uh, may not uh, have life or death influence on the outcome of cases, but I suppose that that's an issue we'll have to confront in the future, perhaps. I think where it might come up, it maybe isn't even in the next rule with, with three days if someone's fighting over notice, you know, whether... Ah, well, that's that's exactly right, and that's, that's why we ought to do three days next. Uh, this goes back to the notion that you and I both learned in law school, which is that when you serve a paper, by mail, you get three extra days for answering. But now, of course, hardly anything is served by mail. It's all electronic. So what did the Supreme Court do in terms of changing the rules? Well, the Standing Committee and, and its advisory committees have, have been working to coordinate rule changes that have been made necessary by technology. So this amendment to 9006F is one of those, the outcomes of that. And it parallels the amendments to um, Civil Rule 6 and Criminal Rule 45, Appellate Rule 26, you know, removing the reference to service by electronic means. So I think initially when electronic service first came about, or electronic filing, um, it was not always clear, you know, uh, if computers were compatible, if you could download attachments, and so the three days applied to electronic service. But as you say, Bill, fast forward to, to this day and age, you know, electronic service is much more um, reliable now. And so it, you know, it's come to the point where they can delete those that three days, um, the three days extra that you need for mail. Um, the other thing is, too, um, the committee was looking at the fact that many of the rules have been changed to um, ease the task of computing, computing the time frames by, you know, adopting those 7, 14, 21, 28 day periods. And so um, adding the three extra days complicated. Are there still going to be some circumstances in which you do get three days? I mean, is stuff ever really served by mail these days? Or is that just um, out the window? There is, no, there is, they, they do, the rule does provide that um, it's three days for service by mail or under federal rule 5B2D, which is leaving with the clerk or F, other means consented to. So it's the other I way. See. Next year, um, Federal Rule 5 is there's proposals to amend it further um, to um, establish a national rule on electronic filing for things like making it mandatory for all parties represented by counsel and um, deleting the requirement of consent when service um, is made on a registered user through the filing system. So there, they're looking at, 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 at um, expanding that even further. By the way, you know, I think right here we ought to mention, Ms. O'Boyle, that uh, your former boss, Burton Lifflin, was the person who literally invented electronic filing and service, right? Yeah. Wasn't yeah. he the one who uh, moved the Southern District of New York to go electronic? Oh, yeah. We went electronic with Macy's way back. I guess in the 90s with uh, yeah, a 500 90s. baud modem. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness gracious! And 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 a it, it was either a Westlaw or a Lexus package. Yeah, but uh, yeah. so it, it, that was 
predated the, uh, the administrative office of the courts, you know, system finally. Yeah. So. Right, and uh, and I remember well how in the Macy's case, Judge Lifflin said that, by goodness, he said, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is going to be held bankruptcy or no bankruptcy. Yes, he one did. One of the best rulings I think ever made. Uh, let's talk about the cross-border rules. Uh, what uh, what are those all about, and what are they intended to So the cross-border rules are really tied to just to improve procedures for Chapter 15 cases. It was a little confusing. When Chapter 15 was added in, um, to the Bankruptcy Code in 2005, replacing Section 304, um, Rules 1010 and 1011, which govern involuntary cases, were amended just to insert provisions governing cross-border cases. They kind of just stuck into those rules. So the amended rules just removed those Chapter 15-related provisions from the involuntary rules. And in place, uh, Rule 2002Q1 was amended to clarify the procedures for giving notice in Chapter 15 proceedings. And it also provides for the court to promptly schedule a hearing on the petition for recognition just in accordance with Section 1517. Um, then Rule 2002Q1, um, and this was an issue that used to come up in Chapter 15 cases. It recognizes that an initial hearing requesting provisional relief, such as an injunction, like a preliminary injunction, may overlap with the merits for the petition for recognition because once, you, once the petition is recognized as the main proceeding, the automatic state provisions provide, you know, kick in. So um, it would, it, it's really, it's almost like the same hearing. So in that case, the rule provides that the court can consolidate the hearings and shorten the usual 21-day notice period for the recognition hearing. And then lastly, uh, they, a new rule, 1012, is added just to govern responses to Chapter 15 petitions and for the filing of corporate ownership statements by entities responding to the petition. So. Well, that sounds like uh, you know, logic and good sense. Uh, logic yeah. and good sense come to the rules for Chapter 15 cases. Because, exactly. Lord of mercy, uh, with the decisions that are coming down from uh, our courts these days, cross-border bankruptcy is a bigger deal day by day. and week by week, that's for sure. Unlike 304, which were mostly filed in New York, Chapter 15 cases really are filed all over the country in, all, in a lot of different dis districts. Uh, they certainly are. Uh, and sometimes, as we know these days, filed when there are absolutely no connections with the United States other than a retainer having been given to a, a bankruptcy lawyer somewhere. Uh, sure. Well, that's a uh, that's a different issue, but uh, one of our judges dealt with a case like that. One of your judges, I think, wasn't it? Uh, very recently, uh, within the last month. Let's go on and not forget about our brothers and sisters who practice uh, consumer law because they believe there are some changes, whether or not, in the rules dealing with proofs of claim by folks who have a security interest or mortgage on somebody's principal residence. What are those new rules all about? Right. Well, Rule 3002-1 was actually promulgated in 2011, and it was in response to a problem in Chapter 13 cases where a debtor had successfully completed his plan payments, paid all the mortgage arrears and post-petition installment payments that were in the plan, and then discovered later undisclosed and unpaid post-petition charges and fees. So if some you know, taxes went up or something like payments went up and they hadn't been notified of it. So uh, rule 3002 requires creditors 
whose claims are secured by security interest in the debtor's principal residence to provide the debtor and the trustee who might be making the payments. Notice of any changes in the payment amount or the assessment of any fees or charges during the bankruptcy case no later than 21 days before the new payment amount is due. So it's intended to ensure that the debtors who try to maintain their home mortgage payments while they're in Chapter 13 will have the adequate information they need to do so. The amended um, Subdivision A of the rule to clarify when it applies. So the reference to 1322b5 of the code was deleted to make clear that the rule applies even if there's no pre-petition arrearage to be cured. So long as the creditor has a claim that's secured by security interest in the debtor's residence and the plan provides that the contractual payments on the claim will be maintained, then the rule applies. They have to give the 21 days notice. The rule also applies regardless of whether it's the debtor or the trustee who's making the payments. And the rule generally ceases to apply when the stay is listed on the debtor's residence. Well, i got to tell you, that's a really important rule because Chapter 15 cases uh, cannot last longer than five years. And if you learn right at the end of your five-year uh, commitment period that you haven't paid your claim in full, you can be up the creek without a paddle. And uh, interestingly, the Seventh Circuit recently was faced with a case like that where it looked like the five years had run out. But the good old Seventh Circuit went out on a limb and said, no, in really an exceptional circumstance, the plan can run longer than five years. This way, people won't lose the benefit of a discharge and having paid out a whole lot of money out of their income to pay their prior creditors. So uh, I can see how that is a really important rule to be sure that consumer debtors don't get blindsided. Yeah. One one of the comments, though, that was a couple of comments were submitted about the rule, and and this came up in in some of the case law, and that was um, that applying the rule to home equity lines of credit with balances that are constantly changing make it difficult to comply with this 21-day notice requirement. So um, an issue came up before one court that says, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, another court like used 9006 to extend the time, but um, the, the, uh, the Rules Committee decided to go ahead with it anyway, but they have published um, for comment for next year um, a, an amendment relating to the home equity lines of credit, which, which allows the court to modify the, the notice provisions. Yeah. Well, that's the way it always is, isn't it, where business practices are out ahead of the development of law and rules. But I guess that's something we have to live with. Ms. O'Boyle, I thank you very much uh, for explaining to us what these new rules are. And I think what this means is that people who publish uh, printed versions of the rules are going to make some money because I guarantee you everybody ought to go out right now and buy new copies of the rules because they become effective on the 1st of December. And again, Ms. O'Boyle, I thank you very much for being our guest and our expert on this ABI podcast. Thank you and good day. Thank you, Bill.